We're back at it here for another episode of Peter's Proffer in the courtroom of current events. And today we have a less than fun topic, but it's important if you are in the business of running daycares or schools or camps or churches or events where you have volunteers dealing with youths. Um, these days, uh, we live in a culture where people are showing their depravity in different ways. And a lot of that is in the abuse of children, um, whether it's physical, whether it's sexual, whether it's emotional. Um, and there are policies and procedures you should have in place to protect the children that are working. And then also the workers to protect them against false accusations. So we're going to go through how we set up child protection plans for companies and businesses that we work with. Um, so, you know, unfortunately we've got to be the bearer of bad news sometimes in the skeptics and the, uh, uh, pessimists as lawyers. So we're going to go through it. We got Pete here. Um, you might not enjoy the podcast, but hopefully you learn something. So as always, thanks for being with us. And uh, if you have any questions or topics you want us to hit, feel free to reach out on our Peter's Proffer podcast page on Facebook or send me an email, petertragos at greeklaw.com. All right, so Pete, we're going to do a quick rundown here of what is important to have in a child protection policy. But before we get into that, let's start out with the purpose. What's the general purpose of having these child protection policies in place for you know youth camps, businesses, churches, daycares? Why is it so important? Well, the obvious reason is you want to make sure that you're actually protecting the children that are in your care. But the secondary reason that a lot of people don't recognize is that what you're doing is you're setting up a policies and procedures for the way your organization is going to run that particular camp or youth activity. And you're also protecting the volunteers, uh, the staff of the organization, and you're insulating not only the organization but individual members from potential wrongful accusations or uh, you know or just malice because the the real gist is if you follow these policies and procedures if you train properly if you have it all set up like this then it's a lot harder for wrongful accusations to stick because you'll see we'll talk about the two adult rule how there has to be two unrelated adults in rooms at all times you're never alone with the children you don't go into the bathroom with them the open door policy if you follow all these procedures then it's going to be a lot harder for a false accusation to stick. You're also going to be in a position where you're uh, deterring a potential predator from coming into your organization and and making a victim out of your, your, your children. Because when he sees you have all these procedures in place and all this training and the criminal background check and things like that, he is going to be a lot less likely to pick your church or your daycare as a place to try and infiltrate and abuse. So we're going to just kind of go through a brief outline of what we put in the plans that we put together. Um, feel free to reach out to us on Facebook or through email if you have any specific questions or you want to get a copy of this outline. We'd be happy to share it with you because, you know, we're we're all about protecting the kids and protecting people from wrongful accusations. So to start out, we we set out what the definitions are of a lot of things that are going to come up in the child protection policy. For example, what is an employee versus a volunteer versus a leader versus a, you know, a, a, a counselor. And, and we define these terms so that it's very clear what their responsibilities and what they will be doing in whatever the camp or the activity is. Well, the reality is you need to, to set parameters uh, and those parameters 
help your volunteers or your employees know exactly what it is that is in their sphere of operations. They also know what they are responsible for. And more importantly, they know where they are not responsible and should not be uh, taking action. And you know, for, for example, and communicating with some other volunteer or some other administrator so they can handle a particular area uh, of concern. And one of the other really important sections of it, and like I said, we're just going to go kind of line by line through it, is the selection of workers. So when you select your workers, there should be some kind of time period that they have to either be involved in your uh, situation, whether it's a church, they have to be going to the church for six months, or if it's a, an activity at a camp, they have to be involved in the camp for six months before they're actually going to have interaction with children or if it's a daycare, they have to be trained before they're actually going to be in charge of taking care of children. Um, you know, you, there has to be some kind of time period rule, a written application where they can put down what their experience is um, working with children, whether or not they've ever been arrested or, or accused of a crime, whether or not they've ever um, been fired for you know some sort of abuse or neglect reason from some other job that they had. They have to authorize you to do a criminal background check on them. Um, and you have to keep this file and keep, you know, their references and actually check their references if they give you references and keep that all documented. You know, God forbid something should happen in the future with that worker. Right. And, um, you know, on that level, you, you really it's not just about doing a piece of paper and putting a piece of paper in a file. You really need to follow up with um your, your volunteers and your people on a regular basis. So for example, you may have to have volunteers re-sign up to volunteer every year. You want to do a face-to-face -face interview with people so you actually know who the individuals are that are going to be volunteering in your organization. Um, you know, one of the biggest issues that we see is that people sometimes and companies sometimes have extremely well-defined policies, but their, their, uh, their application or their policies is suspect. So ha having a personal interview is really important too because you can kind of flesh out some of the answers to the questions in the written uh, application. So it's always very important. Um, so some of the specific rules we like to implement in these child protection policies I mentioned before is the two adult rule. So they say like 90% of these abuse incidents occur in a one-on-one -on -one situation. And then it goes to almost 100% if you do related adults. So two unrelated adults is a great rule because it eliminates most of the statistics. Now, it's not perfect and nothing's foolproof, but we like to eliminate as much of the risk as we can as lawyers. And two unrelated adults at all times with the children is the best practice, in our opinion, as to how you should, as to how you should implement these you know, volunteers that are working with the children. Um, okay, next, the open door policy. One of the things that we stress is, especially when you're dealing with small children, uh, there should never be a circumstance where the children are blocked from the view of, uh, of the individuals that are at the facility. Having children in a room with the doors closed, with paper, for example, over the windows of doors, is just a bad policy. There should be, uh, there should be easy, readily uh, available view into a, a particular room. That way, there's, no, uh, there's never a concern about what is going on inside. And it's also good if you have some of those half doors in some of the rooms. Um, if you have windows so you can see in and out of the rooms, um, that can also be built into the open door policy. 
Um, next, we talk about teenage workers. It's important to have a minimum age, whether it's you know 13 or 14 or 15. They have to be supervised by an adult. They have to be screened just like the adults. Um, they have to be interviewed and talked to to see you know what they're about. Maybe talk to their parents as well before you put them in charge and actually assign them responsibility when dealing with the children. Yeah, and those kids are going to have to be commensurate, obviously, with the activities they're being asked to perform. Um, you know, 14 is pretty much the, the gauge about where you're going to start seeing children volunteering and being able to accomplish tasks. But again, anybody under the age of 18 should not be left to their own devices. Uh, those young people should be screened to make sure that they have the maturity to deal with whatever it is you're placing them. Uh, and they should also recognize that they are children. And you've got to have adult supervision to ensure that you know, everything is focusing the way it should be in the, uh, in the camp. Next is uh, proper check-in and check-out procedures. There's a number of different ways to do this. Um, uh, one of the easiest ways is when somebody comes in, they sign in or electronically check in so that you know what days the student was at your camp or your facility or your church, and you can document that and search back to see what dates they were there. And then the check-out procedure has to be um, uh airtight because you have to make sure the right person, an authorized person is picking up the child and you want to have documentation as to who picked up the child each day because you want to make sure that you can check back. And if someone was accused of giving the child to the wrong person or wrong parent, you actually have documentation as to who picked them up. You didn't just give them to the first guy that showed up. Yeah, and you want to make sure that you have a plan with those parents, uh, especially. So if there's any restrictions on who can pick up a child, for example, there are times where there are injunctions in place where the dad, for example, can't come and pick up or the grandmother's not allowed to have contact with the child. You know, you need to make sure you have that in writing and that the people that are responsible for children are aware of those things. The next thing I see that really is annoying sometimes, you see a sign-in and a sign-out sheet. And again, it's practice over procedure. People just scribble on the line, and you can't tell who uh, signed that child in or out. The reality is the adult that's in charge of those children should be actually annotating who picked up, who dropped and off And most that of child. this should be electronic by now. I mean, they have all of these programs in place that make it very easy to electronically keep track of this stuff. Um, the next two sections we put in here are a sick child policy and a medications policy. Whatever you want, that sick child policy is fine. You know, if you've had a fever, diarrhea, coughing over the last 24 hours, don't put your kid in here because we don't want to get the other kids sick. Uh, nobody should really be administering medications. You should have the parents either do that before or after they arrive, or if they absolutely need to, if you have a, a nurse on the property to do it, not having just random children, volunteers, or teenage workers administering medications. You have to have that policy in place. Next, one of the most important ones is the discipline policy. It's important to set out in black and white in the four corners of this policy and procedural manual what you expect for discipline from the workers, volunteers, children's leaders. It's our practice to put in there no touching at all, no grabbing, no spanking, no yelling. Um, if you need to admonish the children, you put them in timeout or tell them to walk over here or tell them to stop or get their parents involved if it's if it's um, appropriate. Um, this is where also incident reports come in. Uh, you have to have a blank template for incident reports where if a child is injured or if a child you know hits another child that you document it, you say what happened, you have somebody sign off on it and a copy of it is given to the parents of the injured child and the parents of the person that or of the child that you know did the hitting. 
um, because if it happens, you know, more than once, you have a policy that that child's not allowed back at the camp or back, you know, in the church children's room or whatever it is, you have to keep documentation with these incident reports. But you have to set out what is expected from these volunteers as far as discipline goes because, you know, it's a fact of life that, that kids are going to disobey and you just want to appropriately um, discipline them. Next, a long list of something that's also very important is the code of conduct. And that's important because you really want to make sure that the volunteers and the workers know what is expected of your facility, business, church, whatever it is. Um, and this code of conduct can be 15 pages long. It can be one page long. It should include things like no drinking on the job, no concealed carry weapons on the job, even if you have a permit for that, no drugs while you're working, you know, no touching the children, no sitting on or the la- the children sitting on your laps. Yeah. You know, a lot of this stuff sounds, you know, ridiculous, but when you have a policy and you've got it enumerated in painstaking detail, and you know, obviously we're lawyers from from our perspective, we look at those details and we do it, you know, in a way that I guess the general public doesn't think is reasonable. But you've got to have something enumerated so that you're giving good guidance to everyone that is uh, volunteering or working in your facilities, so they recognize what you expect from them. Listen. People don't come from the same walks of life. So there are very many folks that think, you know, a particular thing is perfectly okay. You know, smoking in front of my kids, not a big deal. Other people would say that's a problem. So it is better to just set it out there up front with it. And be as specific as you can, you know, no profanity, no inappropriate jokes, whatever it is. So that if you're going to admonish a children's worker or a staff member or an employee, you already have all this set out in painstaking detail as much as you can. So you can point to it and say, look, you signed this, you know, employee handbook or you signed this child protection policy. You agreed not to do this. We have reports of you doing it. Now we have to counsel you on it. So it's just better to have that in a code of conduct section. Um, next, the restroom guidelines. Now this, there's some, uh, some leeway as to how you want to handle it. Two adults taking them to the restroom, leaving the door open, leaving the door closed, um, leaving the door cracked, depending on the age of the child is really how you can set up the restroom program, but it should never be one adult taking one child into a restroom and closing the door. That should never happen. Um, whether you want the whole class to walk, you know, holding a rope to the restroom altogether, and then one person goes in, that's perfectly fine. Just so that you have multiple witnesses and it's out in the open and, you know, you have no, um, you have plausible deniability and no even appearance of misconduct for the workers because it does protect the workers and the children when you have these proper policies in place. Because remember, what you're doing is you're fostering an environment that is not only nurturing to your children, but also with very clear and delineated guidelines to ensure that everybody's functioning in the way that uh, you know they're expected to function. Um, speaking about you know documenting things, you also need to be cognizant about uh, accidents that involve the children you're dealing with. Um, there should be some sort of reporting instrument for a, an accident that occurs. And I'm talking specifically about, you know, a, a child falls down or something like that happens. It's a who, what, when, where, how. Who was involved? How did the incident happen? Where did it occur? When did it occur? And it's something that has to be documented because more than not, you will have one set of facts when an an event occurs and a very different allegation three months, four months, five months down the line. Right, which is why documentation is so important. So when accidental injuries happen, you have to have a section here about how you handle them. Uh, Who do you report it to? Uh, When do you seek medical treatment? Who is the person that calls for the medical treatment? 
you know, document all that in an incident report and make sure you keep that incident report on file. Um, and taking the next step, a very important section to every child protection policy is mandatory reporting. Pete, why don't you talk a little bit about that? All right. There is actually a Florida statute on this. And the Florida statute basically indicates that anybody that's in an authoritarian role, and I'll give you examples, the obvious ones, police, uh, teachers, fire, uh, firemen, um, counselors, counselors pa- pastors, right. anybody that's in an authoritative role is obligated, pursuant to the Florida statute, to report abuse. And when I say abuse, it's very specific in the statute. It is physical abuse, emotional abuse. And sexual abuse. And also neglect, meaning they're not feeding or caring for their children. They leave them in a locked room. You know, they don't bathe them. And it's really physically detrimental to the child, this neglect. Yeah. And now I don't want to scare people because I'm not anticipating that every time a child walks in a room with a bruise on their thigh, you're going to be calling uh, Child Protective Services. The reality is, though, when you are told by a child, for example, that a parent is hurting them or that there is something nefarious a play. What needs to happen is that that needs to be documented. Someone of authority in the organization needs to be notified, and that individual needs to communicate with the 1-800 number to Department of Children and Families to report that incident. So the way we have it broken down in, in our policies that we write is the vol- if it's a volunteer that finds out about it, they report it to the whoever's the supervising worker in that children's room. And then that supervising worker will then report it to either the children's director, the camp director, um, the facilities director, whoever is absolutely in charge. And then that person will make the call as to whether or not they need to report it to the DCF or if it's, you know, something they need to tell the parents or whatever it is. But there are specific guidelines that you need to go through with all of your workers that they know there are certain things you don't have to make a call on. It's automatic mandatory reporting. And the only way to know that is to actually read through um, and we actually put the link, the, uh, the, uh, the hyperlink, uh, right. The ho- hyperlink for in Florida, how, how, what you, what process you go through and why you have to, and when you have to mandatorily report. Um, and then the last section we have, which is important in all of these types of situations is training. Um, having this policy and handbook and child protection policy and procedures is great, but if you never teach the workers or the volunteers what's in it, then it's worthless. There needs to be um, follow-up teachings multiple times a year. They need to get copies of this. They need to sign copies of this. You need to keep copies of this on in each one of these workers' files, and it needs to be continuous. Right, and here's what we suggest. We suggest that every time somebody wants to volunteer, they have to sign up for it. They can't volunteer until they've taken the orientation course. At that orientation course, what we normally uh, recommend is that you provide a copy of the policy and procedures manual. The, the volunteer will sign off that they received a copy. They'll also sign off on whatever training that they've received. So if it's a two-hour, four-hour class, and, and again, it depends on what it is that you're getting involved in. And it's not unreasonable to do that every year, for example, or in some larger uh, organizations a couple times a year. So if you have summer programs or winter programs, you can break that down. Another way that you can do it, if you have, if the volunteers are continually changing, like at a church, for example, if every Sunday you have new volunteers, you can put together a video um, training that they have to watch and sign off on the first time before they can ever start working. And then they also are required to come to the once a year training that you do live and in person so that they can ask questions and things like that. Because remember, things change over time. So if you do the background checks, if you do the orientation, if you do the sign-up sheets, all of these things on a regular basis, as things change, people's knowledge about uh, about the active policies change contemporaneously. 
So the the main focus and reason for this is we don't have to tell anybody that this sexual abuse and this misconduct uh, that's hurting the children today in America is running rampant. Um, you can look at camps, religious organizations, daycares, anywhere, and you can see it all over the news and it's just going crazy. One of the major problems, we're never going to totally eliminate it. We're never going to eliminate bad people or depraved people. We're never going to totally eliminate that. But what we can eliminate is the mishandling of the case after the fact. So a lot of these places sometimes think they can handle it internally or think they know better than law enforcement or think they shouldn't report it because they don't want to ruin somebody's life. But in reality, we have to have policies and procedures in place in any facility or anything that our children are going to be going to. We have to have these policies and these processes in place, and they have to be followed to a T. If you don't have anything written and you don't even have a policy, you're screwed from day one if an accusation happens. And on the flip side, if you have this written documentation and these policies in place and you just don't follow them, you're also screwed from day one if an accusation comes. So we need to have the policies and procedures, we need to implement them, and we need to apply them, and we need to train on all of these policies and procedures to prevent as many uh, child abuse cases as we can and to eliminate as many false accusations as we can. Yeah, and really, Peter, that's the, that's the more important part. Nine times out of ten, if you implement these procedures, you are reducing the risk to those children because anybody that would target your organization is going to think twice. And you would be surprised how many false accusations come up. And these documents, these, you know, the sign-in sheets, the policy and procedure manual has saved, you know, frankly, people's reputations. So, you know, we like to do the podcast because we like to have fun with it. We have guests on it. We learn new things. It's really cool. It's really fun. But one of the main things we wanted to do was disseminate information out to the public on things that we think are important that we happen to have these expertise, whether we want to or not, in dealing with these child abuse cases. So, you know, we have to do some like this sometimes. Hopefully you guys learn something um, and we'll be back with you hopefully for something more fun next week. 